This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, all the way from Western Australia, multi-award winning novelist Tim Winton on his latest book, The Shepherd's Hut. Tim Winton has published 29 books for adults and children and his work has been translated into 28 languages. He has won the Miles Franklin Award four times and twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize for Riders and Dirt Music. He lives in Western Australia and Tim's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is The Shepherd's Hut. Tim, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thanks for having me. So... Western Australia, I want to talk about first. It's mm. like when you look at a map of Australia, it's that bit to the left that seems like half the country and it's very, very big and very empty. What's it like? Well, it's uh, it's like a lot of things because there's so much of it. There's, you know, there are um, so many different kinds of habitats and landforms and landscapes. So the bottom half faces onto the Great Southern Ocean so, and, you know, the n- nearest thing to it is Antarctica. And the top coast is uh, in basically in Asia. You know, it's um, the Timor Sea and um, faces Indonesia. So it's tropical at the top and um, and very temperate down the the bottom. And it's a big chunk of the of the island continent, and it's quite lightly populated, even by Australian standards, which by world standards is uh, extremely sparsely populated. Um, very. Short on water. Uh, the main city um, of Western Australia is Perth, and um, because of declining rainfall due to global warming, as Jared Diamond predicted ten years before, well, twenty years ago now, that unless you know something drastic changed, Perth would be a failed state. And he was bang on. And now the Perth drinks desalinated seawater. So a city of a million and a half people, um, if it wasn't for desalination, it just would be completely unviable. And this book, the characters live outside of the cities mm. what's life like with people that live in these small communities outside of Perth? well well it's a, it's a sort of shrinking uh, rural population in ter- certainly in terms of um in the agricultural areas partly because of mechanization so you know the great big the wheat belt which is like um there's the ukraine and there's australia when it comes to global wheat production and that's been that's been happening for you know a hundred years in Australia, but um, mechanisations meant that there are fewer and fewer people needed to do that work. So it's lonely out there, and the properties are really big, the farms are really big. On top of that, you know, with the declining rainfall, you know, agriculture is more risky. So it's a it's lonely, it's isolated, it's harsh, and. Um, I mean, put it this way, suicide rates, especially among males in that part of Australia, are two or three times the metropolitan equivalent. The narrator of this story, Jackson or Jaxie Clacton, who is he? He's 15 years old. He's, uh, he's a, you know, on the surface, he's a school bully. He's, you know, he's almost a borderline sociopath, really. He's as tough as nails. He's been brutalised all his life. His father's a dreadful alcoholic. Uh, the local butcher, who's not averse to occasionally going out with a, a few rifles and a chainsaw and killing wild horses and then, then passing them off as um, as beef uh, in his butcher shop. Yeah, the old man's beaten Jaxie uh, all his life. He's beaten and humiliated Jaxie's mother. So Jaxie's a kind of damaged, traumatised kid who has taken on many of the behaviours and thought patterns of his of his father. So when we first meet him, he just he seems profane, spiky, aggressive, but not unintelligent. And also he's 
as you know as the book progresses you realize that he's yearning for something and he doesn't have a very complicated language for that but it, the word that keeps coming back is decency and his mother shirley at the beginning of the story she's dead she's she's mm. died of cancer Jaxie had this very close bond with his mother. They both seem to stay in the situation they're in for each other. Um, but she's gone, but he's still there in this stasis, living with his father, who he's, he's basically... At the beginning of the story, he's avoiding. He's basically not wanting to go home because, you know, he knows what's in store for him when he goes home. Mm. Yeah, and he, he's hiding under the, grand, the local grandstand or the, at the football ground and wishing that his father was dead. Um, and he, no one's ever... No one's ever cautioned uh, Jaxie about being careful what you wish for because he goes home and finds the old man uh, under a, a vehicle that's fallen off a, off a jack. And um, So the, the, the story really begins with this um, flight, really. He thinks, Jaxie thinks that he's going to get blamed for his father's death. Everyone in town knows what the old man's been doing to him and his, um, and his mum. No one's ever helped. And he knows there'll be no help forthcoming and he thinks that the cops are going to blame him for his father's death so he he bunks off he grabs a high-powered rifle out of the gun safe gets some ammunition grabs a backpack fills it with a bit of food and then a jug of like a water container that he fills up and he just bolts and and goes out into the to the bush he keeps walking out through the wheat country until he runs out of farms and then he's in the then he's in the gold fields and finally uh in in the salt country and he's just living hand to mouth literally he has to he has to kill animals to eat them so he discovers that um, there's no romance in being uh, alone and abroad in the Australian wilds. That it's that it's a, it's a very bloody business staying alive. You know, it, he knows what it takes to some degree. You know, what 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 staying alive in in the natural world means. What it costs the natural world and what it costs the self. And Jaxie, as I said, is is a narrator. It's a first person narration. Mm. So we we experience this story in Jaxie's head, and it's sort of narrated from a position of he's telling us this story. I was very struck by the the sort of point in time. He's telling us this story from just after, literally just after the events that take mm. place over the course of this book. Tell me about that decision to point it to put it there. Well, I don't even know if I decided that it just happened. But I, I, he's a he's a boy who's never been allowed to utter. Mm-hmm. It silences everything. It, 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 and language is is dangerous. Utterance is dangerous. Um, the actual terms that you're allowed to use as a boy, as a male, are very restricted. And so he's he's a boy who's just fumed silently, and he's always let his fists do the talking. But yeah, he tells this this story sort of blurts out of him in this in in the wake of uh, these often harrowing events and, and one final very harrowing event that almost sort of unhinges him but it also unleashes him and, and he sort of spews forth this, well, in, in a sense, the story of his life in 200 and whatever it is pages in his own scaly vernacular and, and you know, rough as guts, demotic. And, you know, he doesn't have very many terms but he has, you know, he has a few colourful ones and he just, uh, he repeats them and puts them in different order. You know, there's a lot of effing and jeffing going on. But he, yeah, it's almost as though he just spews forth all this hot feeling and, and he's immediately, he doesn't even know who he's saying this to, but he's almost saying it to the world, to the universe. And he's trying to make sense of what he's just been through, as well as uttering a few aspirations about where he wants to go in his life, even if some of those seem a bit fanciful to the reader. And yeah, despite, you know, he's narrating this story... But, you know, he doesn't talk that much in his life. His father as well, so Sid, his father, 
and Jaxi in succession are very sort of taciturn. They don't mm. really talk or, you know, communicate with language with each other. Um, that becomes relevant later on and we'll get, you know, we'll get to when he meets somebody else who mm. does talk. But he is narrating this book in this in- incredible vernacular. Where does that come from? Uh, well, I think, uh, the, you know, I've always been interested in vernacular language and surrounded by it. And when I first started writing back in the 70s, it's a tough thing writing from, you know, what used to be known as the wrong side of the wrong continent in the wrong hemisphere, to be doing that and, and then on top of that loading more difficulty on top of yourself by writing in common people's language, you know, from the provinces. Um, you just, you're just you making so many problems for yourself, you know, I don't even know why I bothered. But I just like the way ordinary people speak and the people around me uh, I came from a kind of working class background and and I still spend most of my time out in the country and people are different I mean you know the modern world has come there people have mobile phones people watching American television and speak fluent internet and yet in some sense even the 20th century hasn't arrived people have different thought patterns and speech patterns and they insist on a certain kind of difference and I kind of like the fact that they still haven't lost their you know, their colourful vernacular. And it's kind of fun to write in it. It's an interesting challenge to try to honour that language and then to make to make it sing, to, to get poetry out of it, for it to be musical, even if it's started with uh, profanities and um, and it seems bewildering to uh, to someone who doesn't who doesn't speak in that in that dialect. So Jaxie's gone out into this landscape, he's barely surviving at the moment. Tell us something about that landscape. You mentioned, obviously, that, you know, Western Australia is a huge place, very different in different parts. Mm. Where Jaxie is situated, what's that landscape like? It's generally very flat. Um, it's uh, once, he, once he gets out, out of the wheat country, which essentially used to be a great woodland the size of, well, half the size of Western Europe, um, and it was bulldozed uh, and scraped bare in the early 20th century to make um, wheat paddocks. But once he gets out past the wheat country and, and once he gets past cultivation or civilization, then he's into truly wild country where there are animals. But it's stony, the very very low and very sparse trees, and eventually he's into essentially salt country, which is these enormous gypsum salt lakes that are almost always dry, very hot, kind of blinding to, to walk and travel through. Um and very almost nobody out there. But the interesting thing with a salt pan is that you know everything that's ever happened is still recorded there. I mean, you know, you can you can walk across a salt lake and um, a dry salt pan, and ten years later go back and see your footprints. You know, if, particularly if, if if it was a little bit soft. So it's a it's a place where the past resonates and is is still present. I wanted to talk about Sid, his father, for a moment. Mm. So Jaxie's. You know, one of Jackie's main preoccupations is he doesn't want to be like his father. You yeah, know, that's right. Lives in his father's shadow. But of course, as you've sort of alluded to, and of course, you know, we're only having the, the events of this story related to us by Jackie himself. But, you know, he admits that, you know, he's, as you said, he's basically a school bully. You know, he's he's learned to live on his wits and on his fists as mm. well. Um, he worries his becoming... Sids, and there are various, I guess, like sort of symbolic ways in which that happened. Like they both have a, an eye injury, for instance, mm. and and um, Sid 
excerpts of fear not only over his son and his wife, but over the over the wider town itself. Yes, such that he he seems to be immune from um, any consequences uh, for for his actions, and um, he seems it seems inexplicable as to how he could be this beastly. And and um, but he seems to be a protected species. He's very friendly with the local copper, and the only other friend in his life seems to be a, a bloke who sort of wanders in and out very occasionally and, and they go shooting together and there seems to be some prospect that maybe they were in the army together and Jaxie never quite knows whether to believe that um, or not to, to his mind they just look, look like two old fat hairy bikers getting drunk and shooting tins but uh, yeah uh, Sid, Sid's a sort of a, a monster and he and and as you say Jaxie's terrified that he's going to become like that and he's desperate to exceed his origins you know he's very clearly stuck in the world that he's from not just geographically but you know and he's mentally and I I think when I look back on the book you know I think what I seemed to be following was this idea of how hard it is to exceed the world you're from and whether that's class or geography or the family dynamics, the dynamics of um, of gender and sort of assumptions about what's what's right and proper behaviour for a man, and that's the thing, I guess, is that Jaxie's determined somehow. He doesn't have the language for it. He doesn't have the modelling for it. But he he wants to be decent. He wants to be better. He just um, and he's he's worried that he's infected by his father. You know, he worries about genetics, and he worries he doesn't even actually understand the idea about modelling, really. And as a reader, you you you're thinking, well, what's the odds that a kid like this can actually exceed his origins? And I mean, as you say, we're we're hearing it through his mind and his his language, but he does give away certain aspirations to the reader. You think maybe maybe this kid could be something better. Well, his main aspiration is is to to reach his cousin Lee, who mm. he has you know a a, a relationship with. Mm. Um, although, of course, also in this case, you know, we only know about this through Jax's impression. You know, we have yeah. no idea whether you know Lee has the same aspirations. Really. Yeah, so he's rolling the dice his entire existence on getting to Lee in this tiny town of Mount Magnet, further north. And that she's going to be waiting for him, and that she's going to drop everything at whatever she is, fourteen and a half or fourteen, and run away with with him, you know, in a stolen car with a with a firearm, and and they're going to drive north to Darwin, or they're going to go to Queensland, or they're going to go to Bali, or whatever. Um, you know, as a reader, you you constantly and you get swept up in his his aspiration and his dream, but you, you have to remind yourself this kid's. And he's and he's unstable and he's armed and he's he's capable, as we discover, of doing serious harm to people. And uh, so you're trapped within that consciousness, and you're always you're trying to second guess him all the time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tim Winton. We're talking about his latest novel, The Shepherd's Hut. And Tim, this is a contemporary story. You know, Jaxie has a mobile phone, useless as it is, out in the desert. But I mean, it it also seems like a sort of a timeless description of, I guess, a certain type of masculinity. Perhaps we could even say a certain type of Australian masculinity because it's, you know, it's located in this certain place. Nowadays, perhaps we describe this as a toxic masculinity. Why did that? Why does that interest you to write about? I think because it's so resilient. Um, I, I think the, given what we the changes that we've lived through, or certainly in my lifetime, uh, the cultural changes, the changes in government policy, the changes in um, popular imagination, certainly the changes in, in gender relations. When women have reached so high and achieved so much against the odds and against you know a great headwind um it's puzzling that men haven't um progressed to any anywhere near the same degree and so and so just the 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 resilience the stubbornness of these tropes of these patterns of thinking and behavior that that seem to be passed down from father to son or uncle to nephew from sports coach to uh junior football player or whatever whatever it is the and also the, the the way that's echoed and intensified by entertainment culture just just the resilience of these ideas that um many of us or perhaps even most of us are anxious to leave behind they are uh, they stick around and i guess i've been writing about boys most of my life and men most of my life because I, I, I was one and i am one um and puzzling, trying to puzzle that out, um, but also trying to give them their due, trying not to dismiss their concerns and, and interests because they're blokes, and that's if that's unfashionable, then, you know. But in this case, I think it's just an interesting moment. I mean, look, I wrote I wrote this book years before, you know, the kind of recent discussions, mm. but, you know, the same things have applied for a long time. And I guess at one at one level, you can understand that women have made progress because they're reaching for something that's been denied them, something that sh- that should justly be theirs. That's more access to power, more more equity, um, more control, more respect, all that, more opportunity. And they've you know they've done a great job at that, and it's been a fabulous thing to see in in my own lifetime. In order for men to progress, it's almost a it's not the same thing. There's not an aspiration necessarily that's quite as easy to to describe and to um, to make plain. Because really, in order for men to progress, it's not as so much reaching for things as letting things go, um, ceding power, ceding control, examining ourselves, examining our behaviour and our attitudes, um, and so you know. It's always easier to get people to reach for things than it is to get them to let them go. But the only way I can look at it in terms of what is in it for men in terms of changing is that I think what we forget is that if we if men changed, our lives would be better too, not just women's lives. Because, you know, this sort of toxic modelling of these narrow narrow and narrowing ways of being a boy and then you know, which turns out to be very narrow ways of being men deprive us and deprive our boys and our brothers and our our nephews of access to emotion access to language there's so many ways of being a boy so many ways of being a man and yet we we submit to these very narrow enslaving ideas of manhood that seem to you know seem to be something out of a john wayne movie and um and that impoverishes us and um if i have any hope that men will change is, is that they 
will see that there's something in it for them. It's the right thing to do because of the women in their lives and, and ar- around them, but it's also a good thing to do because they're going to live richer lives. It's almost as though we all get given a box of pencils, if I can go for a really lame analogy. You know, we, We're all issued with you know a box of coloured pencils with a full range of colours. By the age of 10, most boys are have had the, the the reds and the yellows taken away from them because you, know, you don't want to do that. You can't dance. You can't sing. You're not allowed to. You can't hold anybody's hand. To, hang on. They want to, no, they can't do that. It makes you look like a girl. Well, this will make you look like a poof. All that stuff, you know. So by the time he's 17, the kid's left with purple and brown and black. And he goes on for his whole adult life with all the colour taken out of his life. And then he re- replicates that. And then he has a son, you know. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned obviously the you know, the books obviously take a while to write, but this book does feel both very timely, but also, as I said, you know, a, a sort of classic depiction of, of masculinity. We've already mentioned, you know, Jaxie's, we only have Jaxie's word on the, on the idea that Lee is waiting there for him. But if she is, then we've also seen in this book glimpses of Sid and Shirley's relationship was possibly better in the past so there's you know there's nothing to say again that Jaxie is not just going to go on in the future and replicate this pattern yeah I, and I'm not I'm, I don't have a kind of a deterministic uh, view about you know that people people have to repeat these and because life life changes you know you know many many people's behaviors are just a response to hardship you know and diminished opportunities and um and, and I, you know, at a time in history, certainly in Australia, and I think it's probably you know not that dissimilar in, in in the UK, we've got to this idea that you know if you're poor and unemployed, that's an expression of um, character, not uh, not a description of your circumstances, or it has nothing to do with uh, your, your origins mm-hmm. and the and the things that are acting upon you, as if that as if history has no impact on you. But by the same token, it doesn't mean that, that men can't change and that doesn't mean that Jaxie's doomed to repeat um, everything about his father. But, yet, you know, what's the odds, really? You know, um, But, I mean, in, in this story, as in life, you do meet people. You do... Opportunities do arise. You do get little moments of liberation that just come thanks to opportune interventions or just, just meeting someone or hearing something... You know, the world's not a closed system. And if, if particularly a kid like Jaxie, who is alert and vigilant to something that might offer him anything, he, you know, even though, you know, as Jaxie, as, as do we all, he gets a hold of probably, probably the wrong end of um, every bit of information, but he does come away with something every time. And so out there in the desert, Jaxie comes across this titular shepherd's hut, um, which is occupied and has been occupied for years by Fintan McGillis, who's a an Irish priest who is, you know, living out there for mysterious reasons, I guess almost like a hermit. And he changes Jaxie's, you know, they develop this relationship. And I guess I mentioned, you know, this was going to come up later on, but the thing that Jaxie immediately notices is that Finton talks. Mm. And so, of course, he's immediately suspicious of this. Yeah, I mean, it's just, as as um, as Jaxie says, you know, people in his family didn't do their thinking out loud. They didn't do their talking out loud either. And yeah, he's he's very suspicious of of uttering. And anyone who's who's talky, like as Fenton is, he's you can hardly get a word out of Jaxie. And the old man really struggles at the, at first to get a word out of him. And um, and the opposite's the case with Fenton. He's incontinent, you know, when it comes to language with and communication. He's very talky, and it drives 
drives the boy a bit nuts. But they're both very suspicious of one another at the, at the beginning. When the old man sees Jaxie, he's covered in blood, he's got a high-powered rifle, and he looks like he's... If he hasn't just killed somebody, he's about to kill somebody. Um, and by the same token, Jaxie pretty quickly figures out that the old man's a priest, and if the old man's a priest, then he's probably a pedophile. So they've, they're both sort of... They're like two dogs circling each other, and... It looks like an impossible situation, and yet I think you know the second half of the book is really about the fact that um, they form this unlikely relationship. And uh, in a landscape like Western Australia, certainly in the interior, you, you can't live alone. You know that's a rom- that's a European romantic idea. You know um, people have lived in Australia for as long as people have been people. Sixty thousand years of occupation, and people survived that long and prospered that long because they did everything in groups. Like, you know, you travelled in a group, you hunted in a group, you did ceremony in, in a group and art and dance and um, everything about culture was group culture. And there's a richness to that, but it's also just a great pragmatic uh, foundation because that was what was necessary. And both these characters, whether they realise it or not, are learning that lesson. You know, And the, in a sense, the country is schooling them. It's teaching them... Um, in harsh terms, just what it takes to live out there. You need a relationships. Now, Finton, he's necessarily mysterious in the book. He's got this backstory that he never really lets on, and we'll come on to perhaps why that is in a, in a minute. But what can you tell us about him? Well, he's he's like he's been warehoused, um, and, and the Vatican does have uh, warehousing facilities for anybody who's a, who's a, who's a problem, and, um, and certainly, you know, before the Royal Commission... Well, the inquiry in, in in Ireland and the Royal Commission in Australia, and I think there've been equivalents in in the, in the states and in the UK before anyone was actually, ever actually exposed and brought to account. They just would warehouse people, you know, for whatever crimes, whether they're financial or sexual. You never really know with Finton, but he alludes to the idea that it might be a, a financial thing. Jackson never quite believes him, but um, yeah, he's been he's been warehoused there for about eight years, and about twice a year, someone comes out and delivers food to him. But he's there. He's there to be silenced. He's there because he, he knows something, and he realizes that he's lived most of his life in bad faith. He's just been a procedural cleric, and he's yeah, he's he's lacked all conviction. And the presence of the boy is a goad to him because Jaxie doesn't know very much, but he has very strong opinions, and he's very passionate. And in the end, Finton sees in Jaxie every boy. He sees. He sees youth, he sees promise, and he wants... And he's full of admiration for uh, for Jaxie, even though Jaxie reads that as sarcasm. You know, he's always saying, you know, what a grand lad he is and how he's in awe of him, and Jaxie just thinks he's taking the piss, you know. Um, so, they're, yeah, they're kind of... They're, they're opposites at, at almost... You know, this loquacious Irish priest who has an education and he's come from a great world beyond who's more comfortable with ideas, even though he's become very stale and lazy. He's had opportunities that, um, that Jaxie hasn't had. And so the, the two of them are butting up against one another. There's also, I guess, I mean, I want to come on to, you know, the idea of religious symbolism in the book. And obviously, Fintan's a priest. But, like, you know, first of all, I mean, there's also an idea that both of these men are being tested by being out there in the desert. Yeah, well, that's... Um... As soon as you leave the confines or the or the dispensation of uh, of the metropolis, 
you're outside of culture and back in nature. And the weird thing is that in contemporary culture, the real tests, cultural and civilizational, which usually means corporate, let's be honest. And the natural world is just background, it's backdrop. Once you actually get, you know, get outside the pale into the into the natural world, the modern person is, is unprepared. And so you, literally the moment you get out of the car and step into the landscape, you're being tested without even realising it. And the further you go, the the harder the test. Whether that's a sort of a divine presence that's testing them or just just the natural world, just, just the isness of, um, of, of what's there. It just means that you're in a different... The terms of trade are different. And we have a kind of a skin of domesticity that we that we slide over reality, but it's uh, it's uh, it's not reality. It's just a it's a skin. And when you when you get into what the real terms of trade are, you know, the earth beneath your feet, the quality of the air you're breathing, um, the availability of water. I mean, that's where we find ourselves at this end of history in in the Anthropocene. And we've we've come to see ourselves as angelic disembodied beings. And there are people who who are heading that way out of a million miles an hour. They want to be more disembodied. They want to they want to unburden themselves of their creatureliness. But what that's meant is that you think that you're the master of the universe. And uh, our ancestors lived at the mercy of the natural world. And then after the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, the natural world looked as if it was living at our mercy. And we were so successful at that. The great irony is that, you know, we are now and our children and their children will live at the mercy of the natural world in a way that our ancestors never had to. So I guess that's what I'm partly meaning by the terms of trade are different. As soon as you get as soon as you get out there, you're just being tested by reality because you're in reality. This is a bit where the boy hasn't had a drink for several days and he's um he's finally found what he thinks is water he comes upon a he comes upon a miner's shack and it's um it's got a water tank the front door of the place was shut i give a croak but there was no noise from inside i was still bricking it then but i was mad for a drink too i turned the handle and it wasn't locked i pushed the door back peered in it was gloomy inside and it stank I hoped to fuck I wasn't about to find some prospector dead in his bed with a face like a rat-eating pavlova. But there was no one, and no bed neither. Just a wood stove and a cement trough, a chrome chair with no back on it, and a table made of milk crates and half a door. The dunny door by the smell of it. I shrugged me load and dropped it right there. I went straight out to the tank, and when I whacked it with me fist, it gave a long, thick shiver, so I knew I was in business. The brass handle was gone off the tap, but there was a vice grips rusted on the stem. That did the job good enough. Water pissed out on the sticky dirt. It looked fine to me, but could have been brown and I would have gone it. I got down next to the tomato bush and sucked it straight from the tap. Didn't taste that bad. I couldn't get the stuff down fast enough. I made noises I'm glad nobody could hear. If you've never been that thirsty, you won't know what I'm talking about. But I tell you, I drank till it felt like there was water in me balls and me legs and me feet, till me belly was hard and me back hurt, and when I finally left off, I couldn't get up again. I sat up that night and fed the fire until I was out of wood. It wasn't cold, but the fire was company, and in the end I packed it in and I put me head down. I was still pretty wrecked and still happy, but I didn't sleep that good. At first it was the hard floor, then I got the gripes. I thought it was hunger pains, but it wasn't bloody hunger pains. I squirmed and rolled for a bit, I wasn't about to try that filthy, reeking long drop in the dark, so I put my boots on while I still had time, and 
when I couldn't put it off any longer, I ran out under the stars and got on with it. Christ, talk about bubble and squeak. I was in and out half the night, shitting like a duck. First I was worried about going out too far and stumbling down a hole. Later I was just glad to make it out the door. I had all night to wonder what it was. Sunstroke makes you puke, doesn't give you the trots. And it couldn't have been anything I ate because there was hardly nothing to eat by then, so that only left the water. I never did think to check the tank before I started drinking. Could have been anything floating in there, some dozy possum maybe, or a crow thought it was a swan. Whatever it was, it went right through me like a rifle rag. Come dawn, me date was so hot you could have lifted a spark plug off it. So I've been talking to Tim Winton. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Shepherd's Hut, which is out now from Picador. Tim, thanks so much for coming in and talking about it. Oh, thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.